In the tenth month of the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his whole army advanced against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city and built siege walls all around it. The siege lasted until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. When famine had gripped the city and the people had run out of bread, the city walls were breached. Then King Zedekiah and all his soldiers left the city by night, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him near Jericho. His whole army had abandoned him. Zedekiah was brought before the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's sons slain before his eyes. Then he ordered Zedekiah's eyes to be torn out. After he was blinded, Zedekiah was bound and brought to Babylon. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. This is episode 24. We are fast approaching the end of this first series of podcasts. I expect there to be two more episodes before I begin the second series on the ancient Greeks. In this episode, I will cover a thousand years of history in Mesopotamia, focusing particularly on Assyria and the Neo-Babylonian empires. I will also look at the age of kings in Israel after the reign of Solomon. A thousand years may seem like a long period to cover in just one episode. Previously, the trend has been in the opposite direction. The earliest episodes went over billions of years of Earth history, then millions of years of hominid history, then tens of thousands of years of modern human affairs. Shorter and shorter periods of recorded history followed, the the focus always narrowing. This trend overall will continue, but I will make an exception here. While the study of Mesopotamia during this period may be fruitful and worthwhile in general, I decided some time ago that this piece of the puzzle merited less of our time and space. We have reached a point where the detailed history of this region is becoming less and less significant for the history of the West. To be sure, the Greeks and the Romans, the Crusaders, and even we Westerners today in the modern era will continue to have important interactions with the cultures of this region. However, understanding their pre-modern history in great detail does not help us much to understand our own culture anymore. We will have to leave the deep research into this era and this region for another podcaster. Nevertheless, I will give this section of our timeline the space it deserves. And in the next episode, we will look one last time at Mesopotamia to study the impact of the Persian Empire on the ancient Near East, the Levant, and the rising Greek culture in the Aegean Sea. There will also be additional material devoted to the period of Israelite history known as the Exile. The episode after that, number 26, will be a short review of what I have covered so far, as well as an opportunity to elaborate on things that possibly did not get a proper hearing the first time through, and to reevaluate some things that archaeology and my own discoveries over the last year have caused me to reconsider. With all that in mind, I also encourage listeners to head over to my website, western-traditions.org. There you will find maps, some helpful pictures, source lists, and more. While you're there, please consider supporting the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Soon, by this summer, I will also be offering Western Traditions t-shirts, coffee mugs, and more on the website, as well as an expanded list of books that might be interesting to, to our listeners. That said, let's get back to Mesopotamia again. 
In the middle of the second millennium BC, a city-state in northern Mesopotamia, on the banks of the Tigris River, began to expand its territory in the wake of the Hittite decline. Soon, the world would come to know the name of Assyria and tremble in fear at the sound of their approaching army. Three hundred miles north of Babylon, the city-state of Ashur sat on the banks of the Tigris River in the second millennium BC. It was already an old city, having been occupied for at least two thousand years. For much of its history, it was just another city in the Sumerian-Akkadian mixture of peoples in northern Mesopotamia, with its own gods and its own local history of petty kings. In the fourteenth century BC, though, Amid the Mesopotamian disorder following the decline of the Hittite rule in Babylon, Ashur rose to the challenge and tried to fill the power vacuum. What came to be was something now known as the Middle Assyrian Empire, to distinguish it from a later incarnation of the same Assyrian power, which I will get to shortly. The Middle Assyrian Empire never matched Babylon in terms of power or influence, even though that southern metropolis had already reached a peak of decadence from which it would ever mark its character. But the Assyrians did manage to create a northern counterpart to Babylon, almost a photographic negative, and this pairing of polar opposites would characterize the Mesopotamian balance of power for centuries. The Babylonians were more urbanized, they were a commercial people. Uh, merchants wielded great power in their society. The Assyrians, though, were more agricultural, more rural, with the proud, warlike, landed gentry being the movers and shakers in the political arena. After less than two centuries of dominating the political scene, though, in northern Mesopotamia, the arrival of the Sea Peoples in the Levant, which I described in an earlier episode, even though they were so far away, had its impact on Assyria and destabilized things once again. Assyria, like all the other regional powers after the Bronze Age collapse, would require time to find its feet again. Its kings would struggle for centuries just to preserve territory in northern Mesopotamia, until the rise of King Adad-Nirari II in 911 BC. That king would begin an expansion of power that created what we now call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and our focus is primarily on this incarnation of Assyrian strength. Who were the Assyrians? We often think of these ancient states as being composed primarily of one single race of people, one tribe that expanded its power, but nothing could be further from the truth. Just like it's also common for people to think of the United States today as something new in terms of its melting pot racial character, this again is a misperception of history. I have already shown how even the earliest Babylonians were not really a distinct ethnicity, but were already a mixture of peoples who had migrated into the area in multiple waves. And just so it was with the Assyrians, especially after they expanded their territory. They were an amalgamation of various peoples living in the Mesopotamian basin for millennia. Semites, Kurds, Hittites, Hurrians, Elamites, Mitanni, and so on. Diverse as their racial background may have been, though, the Assyrians did create a culture which would set itself apart from Babylon, which was also composed of some of the same peoples that formed the Assyrian polity. The Assyrians are remembered for being much rougher than the Babylonians. They were more militaristic, for sure. They are remembered for their cruelty and warfare, and for their treatment of prisoners, and for their warlike god, Ashur. 
Of course, all empires are militaristic to some extent. Nevertheless, even contemporaries of the Assyrians, used as they were to a much rougher approach to life, even they thought the Assyrians were particularly cruel. The Assyrians' own records of military victories attest to their love for cruelty. They speak of tearing out the tongues of prisoners, carving out eyes and blinding them, amputating body parts, castration, of feeding their victims' body parts to dogs and pigs before the eyes of the victims themselves. Like the Aztecs of Mexico thousands of years later, the Assyrians worshipped a belligerent sun god. Named Ashur like their capital city, he was merciless, and according to his priests, he apparently enjoyed as sacrifice the vicious execution of war prisoners before his shrine. The Assyrian treatment of women was similar, similarly rough and seems to forecast later restrictions on women during the Muslim era. Assyrian women lived very restricted lives. They had to wear veils in public. Divorce was legal, but it could only be initiated by men. Men, meanwhile, could take one wife, but could have as many concubines as they wished. Punishment for women was extreme and included death for adultery. The king, though, had a servile and imprisoned harem. Nevertheless, Assyrian culture was not without its redeeming qualities. Artistically, they were not really outdone by the Babylonians. Much beautiful work from ancient Assyria has survived the centuries. Furniture, jewelry, carvings, and sculptures. The greatest works are in bas-relief. Bas-relief, and that's spelled B-A-S hyphen relief, uh, the pronunciation is French, is a form of visual art in which a form is sculpted from a stone background, so it's not a freestanding sculpture, but more like a raised surface. I will include pictures of examples on the website in case the term is not familiar to you, but you have certainly seen such before. Even though the theme of these works in bas-relief can get monotonous for the Assyrians, it is essentially one long stream of sculpted war scenes, scenes of battle, of victory, and bloodthirsty revenge on captives, Nevertheless, the work is beautifully done and also provides us today with mountains of cultural information. The Assyrians of this later imperial age also copied and preserved great stories from as far back as ancient Sumer, which would have otherwise been lost to history, such as that of the Epic of Gilgamesh and the records of earlier rulers such as Sargon the Great, King of Akkad. Now, for a few centuries, Assyria dominated Mesopotamia, Babylon continued to be their counterpart in the south, but in an increasingly junior position until the year 694 BC. In that year, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, whom we will hear about again in retaliation to the war against Judah, this Sennacherib conquered Babylon. The Babylonians had previously captured Sennacherib's son and turned him over to the Elamites, resulting in his death. To avenge this, Sennacherib unleashed all his fury on Babylon after its capture. He burned it to the ground, killed all its inhabitants, tore down its walls, and diverted the waters of the Euphrates River so that they inundated the ruins. He also took the idol of Marduk, the patron deity of Babylon, and brought it back to Assur, where that god was subjugated to the Assyrian solar god and publicly shown to be junior to Ashur in the international pantheon. By this time, the 7th century BC, the Assyrian Empire had grown great already. The empire would continue to expand in the decades after the conquest of Babylon, and it reached its greatest territorial extent, reaching ruling over Egypt, Canaan, Syria, parts of Anatolia, and all of Babylon's former lands. The last great king of the Assyrian Empire was Ashurbanipal. After his death, sometime around 630 BC, Babylon began to reassert itself. 
In 614 BC, a Babylonian army, relying heavily on foreign mercenaries, seized the Assyrian capital and leveled it. The Babylonian, Babylonians hated the Assyrians with such force they took out their centuries of grievances on the ancient city. The city was never repopulated. Its gods and temples were destroyed. They did the same to Nineveh, of biblical fame, two years later. They even murdered all the children, so intent were they that the Assyrians should never again menace Babylonia. A few years followed, in which Assyrian nobles and generals tried to preserve the Assyrian state with the help of Egypt, but Babylon was ever victorious. Assyrian culture would continue in the shadows of defeat, but Assyrian power had forever come to an end. these Babylonians whose army crushed the Assyrian Empire so thoroughly? What was Babylon doing during the long period between Hammurabi and the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire? You may recall from the episode on Babylon that Hammurabi was a great ruler and lawgiver. He established a period of grandeur and power that lasted until the middle of the second millennium BC, when the Hittites demolished the Babylonian hegemony in Mesopotamia. Nearly a thousand years would pass before Babylon would securely regain a position of power in Mesopotamia. Nearly a thousand years, it is hard to imagine. A 1,000-year interregnum. When you live in the United States, as I do, and your country has a national history of only 250 years and a cultural history of just a little bit longer, it is hard to imagine another culture for whom 1,000 years is just the space between two empires. All that time, the Babylonians continued as they were, worshiping the same old gods of fertility and war, of storm and earth, and their morals were famously lax, especially in comparison to their stalwart neighbors to the north, the Assyrians. If we are to believe what Herodotus tells us in his histories, and it is not necessarily wise to believe Herodotus, but more on that in the Greek series, prior to marriage anyway, according to that Greek historian, a Babylonian woman was required to present herself before the temple of Aphrodite, which is probably how Herodotus referred to Ishtar or Astarte. Then that woman would sleep with whichever man came along and offered to take her. And after she had thus prostituted herself, a woman was free to marry or not in life. Now this story may not be exactly true, but it certainly does represent how the rest of the world viewed Babylonian morals. We understand from the historical record that Babylon, after the Hittites were defeated, came under the rule of the Kassites, a people most likely from the Zagreb Mountains to the east of Mesopotamia. They, they may have been Indo-Europeans, as several rulers in these dynasties had apparently Indo-European names, but little else is known about them. During the five centuries that followed their ascension to power, Babylon remained in control of the southern reaches of both the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, their mouths at the Persian Gulf and the lands surrounding it. This gave them immense advantages in trade, receiving, as it were, global commerce all the way from the Indian Ocean to their capital in the heart of Mesopotamia. Now the Kassites were expelled and the Babylonians once again put their own on the throne before the turn of the first millennium BC. A series of weak, ineffectual rulers held power for four more centuries suffering ignominious humiliation at the hands of the rising Assyrian power in the north, even, even suffering conquest of the immortal city, Babylon. 
For decades after that, Assyria would hold sway even over the south, as they had long desired. But the Babylonian nobility would bide their time. The general populace, having become overall too effeminate and too decadent to exhibit martial qualities, they hired soldiers from abroad, Medes and Scythians mostly, about whom we will hear more in future episodes. With these foreign mercenaries, the Babylonians regained direct control over the ancient heartland of Babylonia first, but they were not satisfied with this. No, with a surprising zest for victory, which they had not shown for centuries, the Babylonian ruling class pushed their armies farther into Assyria, smelling the blood in the water as the Assyrians struggled to adapt to an unknown situation, military defeat. Under King Nabopolassar, the Babylonians destroyed Assyria completely. Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar II, would carry on his father's war and seize nearly all of the lands once ruled over by the Assyrians, minus Egypt, which would resume and defend its independence as soon as the Assyrians became distracted by the war in Mesopotamia. Now this same Nebuchadnezzar, whose name you may recognize from the biblical books of Kings and the book of the prophet Daniel, he quickly turned Babylon back into a wonder of the world, he raised high its walls, and he built an immense ziggurat, 650 feet in height. The Assyrians had managed to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, which I will describe later in this episode, but they had been forced to turn away from the conquest of Jerusalem and its kingdom of Judah in the southern portion of ancient Canaan. Nebuchadnezzar was happy to take up the challenge and succeed where the Assyrians had failed. He conquered Judah, sacked Jerusalem, and exiled its surviving inhabitants, bringing many of them back to Mesopotamia. Now, this was a very effective way of defeating an enemy without simultaneously bringing about the loss of all its people. It was a more humane way of treating your enemy compared to outright slaughter, though it was intended to be culturally destructive. People, you should realize, were resources in the ancient world. What good would it do to destroy all the people in a land that you conquered if you then had to let the land return to the wilderness because there was no one to till the ground and keep the territory civilized? Using exile, you could move one people out and move another in, possibly colonists. The exiled people could be moved to another part of the realm where they could practice their trades and contribute to the economy, but they would not be a military threat, displaced from their homeland and surrounded by strangers. The idea, really, was to force a melting pot situation to allow the captured peoples to blend into the surroundings over the generations and become a part of the general populace without a conflicting loyalty to another culture. That this did not work entirely with the Jews was an exception and not the rule. The Neo-Babylonian Empire did not last long, great as it was to become in such a short time. Perhaps we can see the root causes of its eventual fall in the very way that it rose to power, by relying on foreigners to do the dirty work of military conquest. It could really only be a matter of time before the vigorous men constituting such armies looked with disdain on their decadent rulers and decided to take power themselves. In the middle of the next century, after less than 100 years of empire, they would begin to lose portions of their empire to the Medes, who had originally helped them rise to power. And in 539 BC, the Persians, new players on the political and military scene of the Mesopotamian, would utterly defeat Babylonian forces at the Battle of Opus and found the Persian Empire, which would become in a short time the largest empire ever to have existed on earth.
What is left? What remains to be said about the ancient Near East before we move on to the Persians? Not much, and at the same time, a great deal, especially with regard to an otherwise insignificant nation of co-religionists living in Canaan. Now Solomon ascended to the throne of his father David and is remembered now for being the most powerful and wealthy king of Israel. He built the temple named for himself and which was remembered down through history, even today. When Jews and others pray at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they believe that they are standing before the last remnant of that ancient temple. Solomon was also, if we are to believe in the acts and deeds recorded in the Bible itself, a very despotic ruler. He kept a tight leash on matters in Israel. He taxed his people heavily and maintained a large army and an expensive court. He also had 700 wives and 300 concubines, putting his father to shame in terms of sexual self-indulgence. When he went the way of his fathers, Solomon left behind a united realm, but a people who were breaking under the weight of his heavy hand. After he died, his own son, Rehoboam, ascended to the throne of David. Rehoboam was asked to relieve the burdens that his father had placed on his people. Instead of removing this yoke from the neck of his people to show his strength, Rehoboam promised to be even tougher than Solomon. My father beat you with whips. I will beat you with scorpions, he replied to this request. The result? The northern tribes broke away from the south, where Rehoboam ruled in Jerusalem, as his fathers had done. Two kingdoms came into being where there had previously been one. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon and grandson of David, ruled the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. This kingdom was basically made up of the territories of Judah and Benjamin. In the north, you now had about ten tribes constituting the northern kingdom, which is called, from this point on, simply Israel, or the kingdom of Israel. Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Rehoboam ruled over Judah, and the king in Israel to the north was named Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam was from the tribe of Ephraim, and during Solomon's reign he had already been accused of trying to separate the ten northern tribes from Judah. Now he had what he wanted, the throne of the northern tribes. This succession of tribes occurred sometime in the late 10th century BC, maybe around the year 920 BC. The two nations would continue in separation for two centuries until Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. And a little over a century after that, Judah would fall to the Neo-Babylonian forces, and there would not be an independent Jewish state in Canaan for over 400 years until the rise of the Maccabees in the second century BC. But is this the way that it really happened? Archaeology has come a long way in confirming much of scriptural history as contained in the biblical books of the kings. However, these confirmations are largely restricted to the period after the so-called separation of the two Jewish states. There is no independent archaeological confirmation of the United Kingdom during the time period we associate with David and Solomon around the year 1000 BC. Instead, what is actually suggested by the biblical material itself, with its distinct names for God in different places in the text and its dual centers of worship, the Temple of Solomon in the south and the high places of the Israelites in the north, some scholars perceive two separate states from the beginning with similar but distinct ethnicities and religious views. Somewhere in all this, there may be an explanation for, let's say, the Exodus story and for the numerous double stories found throughout the first books of the Bible. For instance, there are two versions of Abraham offering up his wife as his sister, or the two versions of the creation tale found at the very beginning of the Bible. There are many other examples of tales recounted in two versions in scripture, 
Perhaps this is due to the mingling of two similar but different traditions from the northern and the southern kingdoms. So the biblical story gives us a tale of a united Israel in the deep, in the deep past, in the dark ages of the Bronze Age collapse. And this is followed by an unfortunate political rupture. Now, archaeology and a close reading of the biblical text suggest to us the possibility that the two states were always more or less separate, if at times closely allied, and that each had its own version of cultural history, which resembled the present biblical text, but was probably not identical with it. So how does all this play out then? How does the history of the two kingdoms unravel? I won't get into too much detail about the reigns of petty Canaanite kings after we have already so heavily adumbrated the material given to mighty rulers such as Ramses II and Hammurabi. The two states survived the 9th and 8th centuries primarily by maneuvering between the great powers to the east and west of them, Egypt and Assyria, as well as maintaining a constant struggle against local opponents such as the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and so on. Sometimes the two states are allied with each other, and other times they form separate alliances with opposed powers and become enemies. During one period, Judah was essentially a vassal state to the northern kingdom of Israel. But as the Near East recovered from the Bronze Age collapse, there was no stopping the slow creation of empires, of mega-powers that consumed the petty states surrounding them until the entire region was essentially under the control of two or three superpowers. We have seen this pattern continue on into the present. Just take a look at the recent Cold War and the division of virtually the entire globe into two political blocs centered around the United States and the now-defunct Soviet Union. So Assyria eventually defeated Israel, exiled its peoples, and carved up its territory. The conquering king of Assyria, Sennacherib, chose to bypass Judah and to take over Egypt. Judah was saved from Sennacherib's army after a long siege when many thousands of the Assyrian troops died very suddenly. According to the Bible, it was the will of God that killed all the men, perhaps like the Egyptian firstborn were all killed in one night prior to the Exodus. Research suggests that the troops may very well have died from one of the many diseases which, prior to the modern period, ran rampant through army camps. It's a little-known fact, but prior to the Second World War, most war deaths actually came from diseases acquired in camps. Most casualties were not battle deaths, but disease mortalities. So the events in the siege surrounding Jerusalem are not all that unlikely. Nevertheless, Judah only just squeaked by and managed to continue a tenuous existence for another century, choosing its alliances carefully. In the end, the Neo-Babylonian Empire could not be resisted, and the city of Jerusalem fell. The temple was ransacked, the walls thrown down, the people who survived the siege were largely removed to the Mesopotamian heartland to begin life anew as subjects of the kingdom in Babylon. I will, re I will relate the story of their exile and their eventual return in the next episode on the Persian Empire. As the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, struggled to survive for those few centuries, their story concerned more than the squabbles of minor kings, though. During this time, they also produced some of their greatest prophets, whose acts and whose written works would contribute substantially to the foundations of Western literature. In the Bible, many individuals are referred to as prophets. 
it is perhaps useful here to make a distinction between the common modern interpretation of this word and the more Hebrew sense of the term. People typically think of prophets and prophecy as having something to do with predicting the future. It is true to say that there are some prophecies of this sort in the Bible, poetic utterances which proclaim the certainty of future specific events. However, this oversimplifies the role of the Hebrew prophet. In reality, his or her role is to interpret the present will of God, to explain to the people what God is trying to tell them in the moment, to help them make decisions that will align their, their will with his. For instance, Nathan was King David's court prophet. A court prophet was a kind of advisor. Even down to today, leaders of modern democracies often have chaplains or spiritual advisors of some sort, though the court prophet in Israel probably had more influence than a spiritual advisor in the West today. Nevertheless, Nathan, the court prophet of King David, is famous for telling a story to David which made David understand the gravity of his sin in stealing the wife of the soldier Uriah and in having Uriah killed, as described in the last episode. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan said to him, Judge this case for me. There were two men in a town. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. However, the poor man had almost nothing at all, just one little ewe lamb that he had purchased. He nourished her and raised her among his children. She shared his food and drank from the same cup and slept beside him. The rich man received a visitor, but he did not want to take one of his own animals to prepare his food for the visitor. So instead, he took the poor man's little lamb and prepared a meal with it. From the text of the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. David is outraged after hearing this story, and he was ready to wreak vengeance on the rich man described by Nathan. Of course, Nathan reveals that the story was just an analogy and that David himself is the rich man, stealing a wife from a poor man, even though he had many wives of his own. David slumps in realization of the gravity of his sin, and he repents. Clearly, Nathan's role here is not to predict the future, but rather to explain how David's actions reflect on his character. Like a modern therapist, the prophet strips away the distractions, in this case, David's lust for Bathsheba and his enjoyment of her. He strips all this away and shows David the bare significance of his acts, the underlying moral framework of society, and David's abuse of it. And when recognition of error has been achieved, Nathan helps David to recover his relationship with his God and to live in peace, to forgive himself after the child born of the first union with Bathsheba dies. Solomon, the future heir to the kingdom, will be Bathsheba's next child with David. Some prophets, for sure, have less amicable relationships with their listeners. Elijah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom after the separation of Israel from Judah. His great challenge, his purpose, was to bring the people away from the worship of Baal, a god whom I discussed in a previous episode and whose name simply means Lord in Canaanite languages, including Hebrew. Elijah is a great scolder, chiding people for straying away from the worship of Yahweh. Indeed, his name in Hebrew means Yahweh is my God. Elijah, as a prophet, is a man who is profoundly and uniquely in touch with the spiritual world. And he also performs miracles in addition to his preaching. He feeds people by miraculously making their provisions last longer and produce more than could be thought possible. He resurrects a child from the dead. His disciple and successor performs many such similar acts. Along the way, they also both bring about the death of their enemies, even bringing fire down from heaven to kill whole swaths of doubters and persecutors. 
These previously mentioned prophets do not leave any written record of their acts and thoughts. They are only remembered in the form of legend and written into the texts of the Bible that were probably not composed until centuries later. However, there is a series of prophets that come after them who write down their prophecies, that is, their interpretations of God's will, and leave them for posterity. Either that or their disciples wrote down the prophets' thoughts and published them in later years. These are remembered in the Bible with their individual works, with the names of the individuals. There are essentially 16 of them, four major prophets and 12 minor prophets, though those adjectives do not imply that the minor prophets are any less important than the others, only that their works are much shorter. Among these prophets are those with whom you may already be familiar, even if you do not read the Bible, because we continue to use many of their names today, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, etc., and what is their value to our Western traditions? Well, to begin with, they all experience or foresee the eventual downfall of their society and try to counsel the populace as to how to ride out the storm. This is the function of the prophet exemplified. Foretelling the future is of little value if you can't change the future, if God has already determined it. However, the prophet can perform a valuable function if he can tell you how to weather the storm. So the writings of the prophets have their value as philosophical documents in the Western traditions. They are also, frankly, political at times, advising for or against certain foreign alliances. Now, it might be natural to expect the prophets to be Israeli nationalists, spouting jingoistic rhetoric in support of Yahweh and his chosen people, but nothing could be further from the truth. Take Jeremiah, for instance, whose recorded prophecies constitute the second largest book of prophecy after that of Isaiah. Jeremiah's main role seems to be in counseling the ruling class of Judah to accept that they cannot sustain themselves as a singular power in the Near East and must accept humility and subjugation to foreign powers in order to retain any hope for the integrity of their community. This famous prophet was then seen as a traitor by many of his peers because he refused to put blind faith in his king and his country. Jeremiah became one of the first voices in Israelite history to stress the value of personal faith in a relationship with God over any sort of patriotism. In prior times and in other cultures, to identify with one's God meant simultaneously to identify with one's culture, one's city-state, one's king. Public and private faith were one and the same. But we saw that, beginning with Akhenaten in Egypt many centuries earlier, people had already begun to worship their gods in private during the oppression of all religious worship not directed at the sun god Aten. They began to perceive their gods, perhaps, not simply as nationalistic deities that brought down the rain and moved armies, but also as quiet voices in their souls, whispers instead of roars, and the gods themselves as guides instead of rulers. And here, in the crumbling ruins of the Israeli state, we see this idea catching fire again and being written out in the books that now constitute the Bible. Once Israel truly falls and the people are scattered, these seminal ideas will sustain their faith in Yahweh. How many ancient faiths, ancient cultures were lost amid the chaos of military defeat and civilian exile in the days of these Near Eastern empires? The worshippers of Baal and Marduk and a host of other gods found new ideas and new mythologies to move their souls when they were separated from their homelands, and so they disappeared into the swirling mass of peoples produced during these confusions. Not so the Jews, however. Thanks, perhaps, to prophets like Jeremiah, they would preserve their belief in their God through decades of exile 
and bring this faith back to Israel when an unexpected Savior returned them to their grandfather's lands. More on that in the next episode. But who else contributed to this effort? Really, all the prophets whose books ended up in the Bible. The jingoistic, nationalistic prophets whom Jeremiah maligns in his writings, their works were not preserved. No, the books that come down to us from this hectic time are largely the works of prophets who, like Jeremiah, came to believe that their God was not simply a banner for their king, not simply a personification of national goals, but rather a spiritual benefactor of humble individuals, a divine pulse within the human soul. Consider the famous story of Jonah. It's easy to pass over this short book in the Bible, almost an embarrassment due to the fantastical way in which Jonah, thrown from a ship, is swallowed by a whale and preserved from death for three days until he is regurgitated on a beach. But this account actually exemplifies much of what I've been trying to say about the biblical prophets. Now, in brief, Jonah is visited by God and told that he must bring a message to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was, at that time, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a little to the north of the old capital in Ashur. This seems like a terrible burden to Jonah. Bring the possibility of salvation to the enemies of Israel? It is like God is asking him to betray his people, to betray his king, his culture, to betray the very God asking him to do this. So Jonah boards a ship to flee both this mission and his God. Remember how I have explained before that people usually thought of their gods in relation to places, as limited to certain locales or or even to certain realms of human activity. Jonah displays this limited belief in his God, thinking that a little geographical distance from Israel will solve his problems and let him live in peace. Sensing that Jonah is a curse upon them, that his angry God threatens their lives, the sailors of the ship throw the reluctant prophet overboard. He is swallowed by a whale and lives for three days inside the beast until he is vomited onto a beach. Jonah reconsiders disobedience to a God with such a long reach and travels overland to Nineveh to carry out his mission. In Nineveh, Jonah preaches repentance and to his surprise, his horrible enemies all of them people of the wicked Assyrian Empire, to a man they all repent and are saved. God does not destroy their city as promised, since he pardons all who seek repentance without respect to race or creed. Dumbfounded and a little disappointed, Jonah sits beneath a tree and waits to die until God comes and has a conversation with him, explaining how he loves all the men, women, and children that he created, not just the Jews. Remember in the final episode on Egypt how Akhenaten described in a poem that his god Aten had created all things and all people, not just Egypt and the Egyptians. Here again, we see the same sentiment centuries later flowing into Jewish theology. God is the God of all, not just of one people. Though Jonah is remembered as a prophet, there are no prophecies in the book as we moderns would consider prophecies, that is, clean-cut predictions of the future. No, he is a classical Jewish prophet, not interested in telling people so much about the future, but rather explaining to them what God wants now, not later, and how actions in the present will determine outcomes in the future. This is what Jonah does as he walks the streets of Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. He tells people to repent in order to avoid disaster. And Jonah is just another step in the journey to the understanding of personal spirituality that we have in the West today. While religion may be made public and demonstrated in processions and parades and in books and film, it has its greatest impact in the personal realm. It is something primarily regarded as private, something that stirs your soul and causes one to look inward, 
rather than rousing one to an outward display of devotion or fervor. Of course, public displays of faith still exist, but the trend has ever been, since the time of the prophets, for faith in the West to become something more interior than anything else, to become a journey of the soul rather than the body. Now, this trend does not continue from the chime of Jonah without reversals, without interruptions or contradiction. Certainly, even over a thousand years later, in the Crusades, for example, we will continue to see religion and faith as something expressed in deeds, expressing allegiance to political and cultural entities. And even today, there are many ways in which religious faith is tied to an outward group identity. But more than ever, Western spirituality focuses on the individual, on reconciling oneself to the universe, to God, even among those who do not follow traditional Christian beliefs, even those who do not believe in any God at all, there, there is a desire to explore the quiet world behind our own eyes and to find more significance there than in the fleeting pleasures and pains of the outside world. And this religious attitude can be traced back to this change in Jewish spirituality over 2,000 years ago. Jews managed to hold on to their faith during their long exile in Babylonia. I will tell more about the actual events of their exile and their eventual return to Canaan in the next episode on the Persians. But one of the possible keys to their spiritual fidelity may be found in an otherwise insignificant event that occurred late in the history of Judah, long after the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen, and not long before Judah itself would fall. The time surrounding the fall of the northern kingdom is one fraught with fear for the people of Judah in the south. Sennacherib's Assyrian army, after quashing resistance in Israel, besieged Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. Jerusalem escaped occupation when the Assyrians succumbed to disease and retreated. Nevertheless, Judah was not really victorious and eventually became a vassal state to the Assyrian empire, unconquered, but not exactly free either. Hezekiah, king at this time, is remembered as being one of the good or holy kings of Judah. Hezekiah is praised in the biblical text for being faithful to God, even if he was not the victorious warrior that David was. Increasingly, the biblical text will praise his virtue over all others. The virtue of any man who chooses to not to be a great warrior or king, but to remain loyal to God under all circumstances. Hezekiah, counseled by the prophet Isaiah, and possibly in response to both his kingdom's near ruin at the hands of the Assyrians and a nearly fatal illness that he just barely survived, Hezekiah launches a limited religious renewal in Judah. He forbade worship in the high places, he cut down the sacred poles that people went to to worship, and even destroyed the bronze serpent that had been crafted during the Exodus and was used by Moses and Aaron to heal sojourners bit by snakes in the desert. Apparently, though God had commanded the serpent to be made, it had become an object of worship that distracted from the pure worship of the one true God. And we shall see this sort of iconoclasm again in the early Middle Ages among the Greek Christians and among the Muslims and among the Protestants of the early modern period. After Hezekiah, some kings give in to the passions of this world. They permit a resurgence in paganism. They sensually indulge themselves shamelessly in court and so on or at least the writers of the biblical text would have us believe so. And then there is another time of renewal. In roughly the year 640 BC, 
there comes to the throne a young king whom the biblical writers would also revere. His name was Josiah. He came to the throne at a young age, just eight years old. His father had been Ammon, who had ruled only two years before being murdered by conspirators, who were then later murdered themselves, at least so it went according to the biblical text. According to the brief passage about Ammon in the Bible, he worshipped idols as his father had done. His father, Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, was also famous for his wickedness. Ammon's young son, Josiah, was then elevated to the the throne sometime around the year 640 BC. His realm was just barely hanging on to a precarious independence, unconquered by the Assyrians, but not truly free, surviving in the mountains of southern Canaan only because the Assyrians were occupied elsewhere, especially in Mesopotamia, where, at this time, the Babylonians were making their first attempts to throw off their own servitude to that empire. After some 18 years on the throne, when he was fully into his adulthood, Josiah decided to embark on a religious reform of his small domain. Convinced that Judah's troubles could be related directly to its people's lackluster devotion to Yahweh, he melted down all the gold and silver items remaining in the Temple of Solomon, and with those funds he paid craftsmen to make repairs to the temple structure. Now during the repairs, the biblical text reports that the high priest of the temple, Hilkiah was his name, Hilkiah discovered what he called the Book of the Law. This was brought to the king and read to him. Now, biblical scholars have long speculated about what this book might have been, since it is reported further in the Bible that the book contained, among other things, a list of curses that would befall the people if they did not follow their God faithfully. Some have assumed that this book that he discovered was perhaps the book of Deuteronomy, in which such a list is found. Others have thought that it was the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses himself, according to legend, and rediscovered at this time in the temple. Less credulous readers suspect that no such book was found, but rather that the high priest, Hilkiah, or some others in his entourage, actually wrote the book. Indeed, they believe that the actual book of Deuteronomy may be Hilkiah's creation, derived from earlier books in the Torah and from oral traditions, with perhaps a touch of menace thrown in by Hilkiah in order to motivate his king and the people to reform their ways. Regardless, the reform was soon underway. Not only then did Josiah renovate the temple, he then threw out anything that resembled or encouraged idolatry. Josiah then went throughout the land, as his great-grandfather Hezekiah had done, and also destroyed high places where people privately worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. Scripture also describes how he defiled the place called Topheth, where children were sacrificed to pagan gods. This was enough, apparently, only to preserve the kingdom during Josiah's lifetime. He would be the last king to lead a mostly untroubled reign. In 609 BC, after ruling for 31 years, he died in battle against an invading Egyptian army. One son was captured by the same Egyptian army, and the other ruled as a puppet to first the Egyptians and then the resurgent Babylonians. The next few kings served Babylon, but not without rebelling occasionally. The last king of Judah was Zedekiah, who also rebelled against Babylonian rule and suffered the fate described in the passage that opened this episode. Into exile, the Jews of Jerusalem would go, would go, as had many people before them, as had the Israelites of the northern kingdom a century earlier. One key difference about the exile of the Jews from Jerusalem at this time, though, distinguishes them from perhaps all other exiled peoples in ancient history. Thanks to Hilkiah, the high priest, and Josiah the king, they took with them a faith now codified in a book. 
Perhaps this was the key, or one of the keys, to the survival of their religion amid the turmoil and chaos of the conquest and exile. Perhaps it was also the religious renewal initiated by King Josiah just a generation before they were led away in chains. And by this time, many of the prophets, or their disciples, had preserved their poetic utterances on the relationship between the divine and the human in writing as well, and these prophecies were also carried into exile with the Jews, where they would be read by the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates, and used to remind the exiles and their descendants that they had not always been strangers in a strange land, but had once lived in a land of their own, a land of milk and honey, far to the west, where the sun set every day on Jerusalem. And they had worshipped their own God, their very own God, whom they could remember by reading the scrolls that they had brought with them and passed around in their synagogues, the humble meeting houses where they gathered to worship their forgotten God in small, quiet ceremonies, so unlike the orchestrated rituals of the ruined temple. There is much more in the historical and prophetic writings of the Bible that is important to our Western traditions. I will tell more about these things in the next episode when I relate the events of the Jewish exile and their humble return to their homeland under Persian rule in the 6th century BC. For now, just just as the Jews' ancient homeland in Canaan was conquered by foreigners, so too do all the lands of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Anatolia experience foreign conquest. The Persians are coming.